Welcome to the Breakout Growth Podcast, where Sean Ellis interviews leaders from the world's fastest growing companies to get to the heart of what's really driving their growth. And now, here's your host, Sean Ellis. In this episode, we're going to look at Freshly, a meal service that aims to reduce the barriers to healthy eating. I'm going to be speaking with the CMO at Freshly, Meyer Gupta, who was previously the VP of Growth and Marketing at Spotify. So he's going to give us a really interesting perspective comparing the two companies. Meyer's going to explain how he's now focused on building the right culture and mindset to support rapid iteration so that they can accelerate the number of healthy, convenient, and tasty meals that they deliver across the USA. So let's get started. All right. Welcome to the Breakout Growth Podcast, Meyer. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for having me over. So before we jump into how you're approaching growth, can you give a brief introduction to what Freshly is? Sure, yes. Um, Freshly is um, the largest direct-to-consumer fully prepared meal subscription business. And uh, our meals are never frozen. They're fully cooked and ready to eat in three minutes or so. And our mission is quite simple. It's removing the barriers to healthy eating uh, with a purpose of inspiring every individual to unlock, you know, their full potential to thrive. And we strongly believe that can only happen at the intersection of three core things, which is health, taste, and convenience. And that trilogy has never, never been, um, never come together. It's very similar to good, fast, and cheap has never happened. Mm -hmm. And, and um, as of January this year, so earlier in this year, we went nationwide. So we are delivering now in 48 states and, by the end of this year, we would have delivered close to 35 million meals just in this year alone. Wow. And uh, exciting news is we just had our millionth user, you know, a couple of months back. So we are super excited about the growth we've seen in the last uh, four and a half years or so. When I look at the product, I uh, I did see that you're delivering in my area in Southern California. So <laughs> that's uh, that explains the 48 states that you're into now. But um, are most people in- interacting with the service through the website or is it more of a mobile experience? I mean, clearly, clearly the physical experience of eating is <laughs> is the, the most important part. But how, how do they uh, digitally engage with you? Yes, yes. And I think you kind of subtly hinted at another point which is what's relevant to the consumer is is only the the physical aspect of consuming the core product or is the overarching and i'm sure you've been a big proponent of this it's everything matters from the web to the to to the mobile to the native app but to answer your question we're absolutely a mobile first experience that's our mindset that is where we are you know inching every single day forward and um you know, a big percentage of our users uh, are leveraging our native app. Um, from a quality of the user, uh, from the engagement, we absolutely see a big upside on our native app user. The lack of friction in mobile for any product definitely has a measurable impact on the overall experience. So from that standpoint, absolutely yes. And um, I feel our users get to our magical moment and, uh, you know, the aha moments much faster in, in a more quick way when they download the app and they experience when uh, as part of a product roadmap, there's a lot of focus on how we add incremental value, incremental features and capabilities on a native app that will elevate the experience overall. Mm-hmm. That's great. And then what, what is the target customer or the typical uh, customer that uses Freshly? 
Yes, you know that's a that's a very exciting exciting part again coming from Spotify. I could pretty much tell you exactly the core audience. At Freshly, what's super exciting is with the kind of challenges we are solving for people in people's lives, which is healthy food, which is extremely tasty and delicious with a lot of variety, but also convenient and and you know not not twenty five bucks a pop. Um, that opens up to a very diverse, extremely diverse group of audience. So if you think about it, you know, we are solving the problem for somebody passing out of college, looking for their first job, you know, moving out of their house and starting to figure out how they're going to live, um, you know, in a, in a very interesting part phase of their life to someone who's just, uh, for example, just got married or a family that is expecting a baby, uh, you know, their first, second or third baby or even empty nesters all the way down. So it's not, I would love to say, hey, we are, a Gen Z platform targeting the millennials. They obviously represent a big percentage of our audience, but we also have our empty nesters who are, again, at a very different kind of life stage, trying to say, look, I've cooked all my life and um, I'm tired of cooking. And is there something that is healthy for me because I have all these limitations and restrictions? But I don't want to, co- I don't want to compromise on taste. I don't want to compromise on the appreciation uh, you know, for what I eat every day. So we're solving different, distinct life challenges for people at different stages. And, and do you feel like the competition is uh, home-cooked meals? Or it's probably a little bit of everything, but <laughs> home-cooked meals more or frozen meals from, from the grocery store or the other meal service companies or is it a cross-section of all of them? So it's uh, the we're definitely getting uh, a big portion of the market share from one people who are buying frozen meals because they realize look that's not that's not the sustainable path. Um, needless to say, the kind of categories in the option innovation happening there is far limited. Um, a big portion of the market is moving from home cook because that age old mindset that healthy cook healthy cooked meal can only happen at home has dramatically changed and. I think I give a lot of that credit to meal kits, which is not who we are, absolutely not. But they they created a whole category and a belief system where people now have a mindset that I can eat healthy um, even if I order something on the cloud, you know, via online. Now, what hasn't happened in that category, in that example, is they've solved for health, they've solved for taste, haven't solved for convenience. When I compare that to meal service delivery, like the the Uber Easy Grubhubs, they solve for taste, they solve for convenience, but have not solved for affordability, have not solved for health. You know, for some of these places, the the highest repeatable restaurants like, like Chick-fil-A and so on. So I think there is always good. And the way we think about the market share, Sean, is in terms of um, in the share of stomach. None of these categories is thinking that you expect any of your consumer to consume your product 21 times a week. As a matter of fact, we expect our users to skip weeks because we are weekly subscription model. We want every three, four, three weeks or so, you know, skip a week, skip two weeks and then come back. Because, and then within a single week, you know, freshly plays different roles for different kinds of people. So, but there's a lot of market share from those categories coming into Freshly. Mm-hmm. And, and so how much variety are you able to offer? How does, how does the variety piece work? Oh, it's huge. We we have uh, 30 plus meals every single week. There is one to four new meals that get added to the menu every single week. So there's rapid innovation, which is the byproduct um, of a direct-to-consumer business. Um, you know, we innovate and launch new meals, um, uh, you know, a brand new meal from idea and inception to getting into market, which includes 48 different steps. 
you know, coming from the best practices of Nestle, which is one of our investors, in three to four months. But every single week, there is at least one to four meals that get launched. And at any given point in time, you'll have 30 meals. We just launched bowls. We also piloted snacks earlier this year. So there's a tremendous amount of variety um, that we have there. Now, we obviously are not focusing on certain types. So we're not too big on keto just yet. We, you know, if you're a pure vegetarian, you may have some limited options there, but we are gradually maximizing and expanding our addressable audience, which will reflect in our menu as well. Awesome. Well, I know it seems like I'm asking a lot of questions about the the product and the service, but to me, I think um, sustainable growth is really a function of, of the service that you're offering and the need that you're meeting and what that competitive landscape looks like. So that's, that's part of the reason I go into those details, but I would love to get your broader picture of what you think are the key factors that are, are driving the growth in the business today. Yeah. You know, there is, there's not a single thing that I can point out, but I would say as someone who's still, still new, been here now um, 11 months or so, um, I would say there are three or four things. One is there's no doubt that we've proven over the last four and a half years, we've proven a strong product market fit. Um, and it's just the, the virtue of operating at that intersection of, of you know, health, taste, and convenience, and which is also evident from our growth year over year, our retention rate, our NPS, and not saying we've reached the pinnacle of where we want to be. We are you know quite far away from there, which is also exciting. But I think if I were to say, there are three things I would call out as, as what I firmly believe are a reason for why we've reached a product market fit. One is the data culture and the mindset that is inherent, deep rooted in our DNA that has led us to bring, build what I call a strong business with strong unit economics um, and, and not as much uh, a strong brand just yet. So I compare that to many startups when I was going through this process late last year, where I feel there, are, there is two categories of startups. One that built a halo effect around the brand in the first three or four years and have weak unit economics, have a weak underlying business. They've got a few of those. We happen to be on the other end where we built a very strong business and a lot of that is is because of the DNA of our co-founders, especially Mike, who's a CEO, um, who built a very strong business underneath. So our unit economics, the fact that we're not locally producing, we are national, how that has given us a lot of efficiency in our supply chain, how have we applied data in our supply chain, in our acquisition, in our growth, in our product? So one is that is cool. Two, I think um, the the DNA to pivot and re-pivot the moment you sense failure and having a good, what I call a good healthy amount of ego to say, yes, we have a belief system, but you also don't want to have an ego that prevents you from saying, you know what? I came up with that idea, but it isn't working. And it's okay to say that we're going to change and we made a mistake, but here are the wins, here are the victories because we learned from it. And, um, and, and so that's, that's, that's the other part, which I think is key. And the third is just that the rapid iteration where you almost measure your success, not in terms of how much you move the KPIs, but your rate of iteration. And that applies to everything we do from creative to the core product, to how we actually ingest consumer feedback. We apply, you know, NLP on it to figure out, hey, which meal needs to have a different kind of side as opposed to what it has right now because the users are giving different kind of feedback, which we get in our meal ratings, as an example. So I think some of those core tenets, but I firmly believe, Sean, that in today's industry, in today's world, which is which is absolutely disrupted and driven only by one thing, which is a consumer, the only moat companies have today, and this is my one 
And the biggest lesson I learned at Spotify was the only moat you have today as an organization is your ability to move faster than the competition. Everything else is conquerable, which means that underneath, you have to build a culture that feels safe um, and confident to run 100 miles an hour, even though you can only see 10 meters ahead. And that is easier said than done because very quickly and very easily, that culture can translate into anxiety, a lot of negative energy. And one thing I learned at Spotify was growth companies and successful organizations in today's world are not the ones who are going to tame the chaos down or kill the chaos. They have to learn how to harness that chaos in a healthy way where you pivot multiple times, where you move fast, you change, but you do not let that create a negative force inside the organization or an anxious force. And how Amazon may say, how do you continue to be a day one organization solving day one problems and not worry too much about day two, day three problems? When you look at the challenges and opportunities, like clearly you're coming off of Spotify, that super exciting company, super cool company, um, so, so many good things going for it. When you looked at Freshly, I mean, one, what was the big attraction to join it? And then two, how, how are the challenges different there and how are the opportunities different there as well? Yes. Um, so what drove me to Freshly, like you said, Spotify is a fantastic brand, perhaps one of the few iconic brands of the last 15 years that uh, anybody would love to work at. So I feel very fortunate to have gone through that experience, learned, learned a tremendous lot. Uh, it's also not easy to, to get off of that ship. But as an engineer, which is, which is my background, and as a product guy now sitting in marketing, a bit of a misfit, what mattered to me always was to get early on into an idea where I could be part of the sausage making, where I could be part of making something really big. When I joined Spotify, you know, back in 2016, you know, we were still, the company was valued at $8 billion. And of course, when I left, we were 30 plus or so. But I still can't say that I was part of in the early product market fit state journey. I wasn't there. It was already built and I helped. I played my role in taking it to the next level. I had this innate desire as an engineer who's had two failed startups to find something. I felt at Freshly, I felt that. Two, I love the mission and the purpose. I felt there was a massive vacuum in the world right now in terms of nutrition um, because everyone's talking about diet in the sense eating less as opposed to really appreciating it. Three, I love the founders. I love the executive team. And, and this ties into what excites me about the opportunity here is as a, as a makeshift marketeer who grew up as a technologist then into product guy, the, I wanted to be at a place where marketing is synonymous with growing the business, which means that, and I define growth of the business in, in three in this Venn diagram with three bubbles, growth of the brand, growth of the user base, growth of the user value. Now, um, I've spoken to so many founders and I've seen so many growth tech product companies where marketing is a facade right now, where there is this bandit of growth, you know, that sits outside of pro core product and core marketing. And they have the very specific reasons to be like that. As a marketeer, I wanted to be in a place where marketing was not isolated to just building the so-called brand or building PR. I wanted to be in a place where marketing's impact, inclusive of you know defining the purpose and living that purpose and the mission and reflecting that not only in the brand, in the messaging, 
but also in the product, also in every aspect of the business, but then also tangibly measure the the impact of marketing in terms of top line growth, whether that is in terms of the user base, the CACs, the LTRs, the LTVs, the retention rates. So that's what I have at Freshly, where marketing is ultimately a PNL. Um, you know, as of a few months back, where we have we are the growth engine for the company, working very closely hand in hand with the product, with the engineering, with supply chain. But all those things kind of were exciting things for me. Where Still haven't figured a lot of shit out, which is part of the journey and the fun part. At least on paper, you know, that is what excited me. All the things that you list are the things that I, I find important as well, because there's, there's challenges. And if you don't feel that, that chemistry with the, with the founding team and with the rest of the team, and you're not really attracted to that mission, then it's, then it's hard to, to have the sustainable energy and, and, and will to succeed that is so critical to overcoming the challenges that are inevitable in every company that, that I've been a part of. Yep. When you look at the, the role of CMO, it, re- it really jumped out to me when you listed that you have you know, that product background, the marketing background, the engineering background. I love the, the idea of, of marketing sitting right at the core of the organization. So when you look at your role as CMO, how do you scope that? What, what, what is included? What's not included? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've, I've thought a lot about it and I've written a bit about it because I traverse through different categories. So from a pure tech and product side where I was leading some product development for ad tech and marketing tech solutions back in mid 2005s to traditional CPG, Fortune 100 to a bit in healthcare marketplace and Spotify and so on. And I have my perspective on the role of marketing, but as I've looked at the dynamic and the diversity of the business models, I've come to realize that there are two macro areas, and you can slice it further, but there are two macro buckets of businesses. And that is important to call out before I address how I see the function of the CMO or marketing at large. Um, The way I differentiate is, is your core product an online product um, where um, there is, it's almost impossible to isolate the online experience with the tangible product itself. Examples being um, the Spotify's of the world, um, you know, or um, uh, you know, or the Lyfts and the Ubers and 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 so on, right? Where the the experience itself is is just online. Compare that to a manufacturer, um, you know, or let's say CPG, um, and let's just talk about direct to consumer for a moment. It's a lot easier comparison where you are selling a physical product, but it's sold online. I feel the rules for a CMO differ in those two broad buckets. In in the first bucket in the category, and you can put Facebook in that example as well, growth is a stronger function of the product. As a matter of fact, product becomes your strongest level for marketing, which is virality, network effects, slacks of the world, and so on. And I totally get that. I think I have seen now, could be wrong, with the CMOs may challenge me, but what I've seen, the CMOs there play play a role on more on the brand, more on the awareness, the, the halo effect. And in some cases, they also own acquisition. Even that is debatable, by the way. I've seen a lot of organizations where even that sits with product, okay? Performance marketing media, because they will argue, hey, that requires a lot of data and science, which is in product. Whereas in direct-to-consumer, I feel if marketing is not the growth engine, which includes building the brand, 
So all the aspects of that, from content to PR to to actually top of funnel brand awareness, which I call create new demand, along with um, build a user base, which is acquisition, not just paid, organic acquisition, which as a matter of fact is a function of how strong your brand is as well and how good your product market fit is. Um, you know, uh, organic organic growth like that, virality and, and uh, referrals and word of mouth and all of that. Then third portion is retention, which doesn't matter which business you are in, is a function of every aspect coming together. So retention ultimately sits based on I think the skill set based on how the organization is structured, you can put it wherever because ultimately the only way you retain is when your overarching experience continues to get better every single day. So at Freshly, marketing at Freshly owns um, all those three pieces, acquisition, retention, and building the brand. And we also have BD and partnership. Hence, it's a PL, you know, especially getting into next year where ultimately we want to show if here's our gross revenue, here's our gross margins, you know, what is the investment in marketing across the board? And if you want to grow marketing and make it more efficient, well, bring more organic users, you know, bring more word of mouth and reduce the dependency on paid acquisition by increasing your retention rate. So you increase more repeat users, et cetera, et cetera. So that's super exciting, challenging at the same time, but underneath that requires a lot of data science. So we have, we have an incredible global data team that have embedded analysts and data scientists inside marketing. And, um, we have very we have cross-functional pods, which is now a mainstay for many product companies. So while I've mentioned these functions, these are not isolated functions. So these are cross-functional pods where we have product, we have engineers, you know, we have um, data scientists, we have copywriters, content, brand teams, et cetera, et cetera. Where do those pods report into? So the three pods, the the top of funnel awareness pod, which is over-indexing on building the brand. The acquisition part and the retention part all report into me. Ultimately, if you're missing the numbers, I'm the first line of questioning for the leadership team, you know, for the CEO. And then underneath that, then we'll have. And that's the way we built our reporting structures as well in terms of weekly reports. What are the North Star KPIs we look at? But then we also have underlying contributing KPIs or leading slash dependent KPIs and so on. But ultimately, the way we've organized marketing is outcome driven as opposed to output driven totally but obviously outcome is a function of output to some degree so yeah there's a direct correlation there the only caveat i would say is i've been in 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 my previous roles and i've learned it the hard way when you stop at the output you literally are producing a lot of shit that and there is no accountability for the ultimate impact Exactly. So tying back that connecting output to outcome, it will will help you uh, redirect resources to where they can really drive impact. 100% because, and we just literally had this discussion with the whole organization this morning. All of us can do a lot of things any given day because we have these great, incredible leaders with tools and technology and budgets and so on. But determining which ones to do is what comes from outcomes. Mm Mm-hmm. So, so you mentioned North Star Metric. What do you guys have? Uh, I mean, I assume since you brought it up that you have one. What is it? So it's evolved. Um, and uh, it's evolved because we realized that the ones we had earlier. But at this point, I can very confidently say that our North Star Metric for my organization, which is of the company, is, is LTR to CAC. Um, it is neither one of those in isolation. And I, 
the reason why I say LTR to CAG, because I think it's a great encapsulation of a strong brand with an efficient engine to acquire those users either organically or in a paid way and a very strong retention. It removes the mindset where these wheels are running in isolation, where one unit is focusing on just driving efficiency in your acquisition cost, um, you know, and not holding themselves accountable to bring a higher quality user who's more value and higher retained. If your ultimate goal is to drive impact on the mission, I mean, you, you obviously can can actually improve ratios by growing less, and that would that would help you improve the ratio, but you're making less impact. So how do, how do you factor in the overall growth into that number? Yeah, so obviously, I mentioned the North Star metric um, you know, for the marketing, which ladders up to the North Star metric for the company, which ultimately um, you know, is top-line goals that we have, top-line revenue goal that we would have. We would have an EBITDA goal, which is, again, something very... Uh, something I don't see often in growth companies that often talk about just the MAU growth or subscriber growth, but we at Freshly focus a lot on our unit economics. So we have very tangible numbers next year for what is going to be a top line growth number, pure revenue and gross and net. Um, and then what is EBITDA? Because everything then sits underneath that, right? So if if I'm deciphering those two metrics and saying, uh, how do I translate back now into marketing's mission to get to LTR to CAC. Supply chain will say, how do I translate that into driving efficiencies in my logistics and supply chain? Product will have uh, you know, uh, a derivation of that. And I see this as, and I know you're a big proponent of this, but I see this as you know, multiple level of cascading KPIs. So there are North Star KPIs, but equally important are those leading indicators that we all have. And then underneath my North Star KPI of LTR to CAC, I have many leading indicators, leading KPIs or contributing KPIs that different teams monitor because you may argue and say, well, you can kill your mission, you can kill your purpose and still hit your LTR to CAC number. Absolutely, yes. So how do you balance that and how do you create a governance model? And that is where you have some of those contributing KPIs that, um, you know, that collectively have to meet to hit that, that North Star KPI. And, and do you feel like EBITDA as the, as the overall metric that you're trying to grow is, is something that um, is tangible enough for the broader team in terms of feeling kind of the connection to mission? Or, for example, if I thought about you guys, I, w- I would think something along the lines of weekly meals delivered uh, within our you know, acceptable unit economics or something like that, which would also account for it, but it would feel closer to mission and feel like something that everybody feel great about growing. Uh, have you have you thought about something like that? Or is it is it almost a function of bad unit economics in some of the competitive companies that have made you over-index on making sure that the economic strengths of the business are strong? Yes, you know, that's a great point. And look, some of that, I would say, is dependent on how we, how we both define the North Star metric. And North Star metric um, for the company, and then saying, peel back from it and say, what is going to be the North Star metric for different functions as well? Sure, right? sure. And and I think we've, we've swung many different ways. I personally have swung many different ways. And I feel that what glues the organization together have to be clearly measurable um, KPI, which you can see in big and bold, you know, every single day, every single week. And I think that... That I can I can say yes. That is our top line growth number. That is our some EBITDA number. But to your point, which is absolutely spot on, is 
does every single person in the organization relate to that? And can they correlate and connect their work that they do every single day to an EBITDA number? The answer is absolutely no. And that is where I feel the leading KPIs or the North Star KPIs for the functions is very important. So how does that get translated back down into marketing and the different functions of marketing, into supply chain, into product? So that's the strategy that I feel we are trying right now, which is starting to work a little bit. I personally struggle to, to in the belief that you can have one set of KPI that that everybody now says, everything I'm doing, I can see it ladder up. You have to peel it off. Yeah. As long as you can say, all these leading KPIs or contributing KPIs, this is how they ladder up to that ultimate Nostar KPI. And then as well, being able to make sure that uh, when my KPI growth hurts your KPI growth, if we're in different functions, that we have something that says, overall, the, the improvement in my KPI, even if it brought yours down a little bit, if, if say yours is a ratio, overall, the impact on EBITDA growth is positive. So we should we should continue doing maybe this new approach to something. Yes. And and I would love to say yes. I would say it's hard, um, especially when you're also running at 100 miles an hour. And we are we are we have incredible leaders, um, you know, who look at a goalpost and they run at that goalpost. And but the good thing is that's where agility, you know, and and nimbleness and some of the underlying processes play a role. Where how are you measuring the OKRs? Do you have a a rhythm of every quarter, every month, the the pause across the organization come together and analyze and assess before you move forward? But those are, I mean, you're touching up some points which I would love to talk after this session to see how you've seen being solved because I haven't found a silver bullet to solve it. Uh, and it's also ties to the culture and the value system you build in the organization. Absolutely. And I think in, in my experience, that's the biggest challenge of what you hit on earlier. Rapid iteration is absolutely critical. Rapid iteration across all of those customer touch points to accelerate growth in the overall business. But where I've seen it break down is in, is in the cross-functional side of things is that um, you know different functions it's really hard when people are focused on their on their kind of very functional metrics to step back, look at the big picture, and stay aligned with the rest of the group. And that's where I think, uh, or with the rest of the company, and that's where I think um, tying it all back to mission and an overall metric can be really effective in in uh, getting that that cross functional alignment, which is which is critical to make sure that um, everyone stays on the same page. Huge. And one thing I would add to, I couldn't agree more with that, Sean. And um, I would say from what I've seen at, at various growth companies, which are now at multi-billion dollar in value, is they all grew with this mindset of autonomy or the mindset of squads and tribes and chapters. And because that was that is what propelled, you know, that growth, solve day one problem, run 100 miles an hour, have the autonomy to make tough decisions in pockets, remove the bureaucracy. What happens is when you reach a certain stage in terms of your scale, that same thing that was the proponent, you know, the, the biggest proponent or the catalyst for growth now becomes your barrier because uh, you now lose the interconnectivity. Now you create so many fragments. And I think that is a time when you have to take a step back and to your point, see how these indigenous and individual pods now correlate with each other because they can very quickly become unmanageable and, and difficult to create one single mission, one single experience. 
But I, I still think that what you've touched on already as kind of the key factors that are driving growth. So that pivot and repivot and just really tight on product market fit and then continuing to drive rapid iteration across all of those customer touch points is is super powerful for, for driving growth. And it sounds like a lot of the um, organization that you have has uh, in terms of these different pods is working well. I'm just, I'm curious what the, you know, obviously different pods covering different parts of that customer journey. Um, it's important to specialize and, and be good at those, but what is the path that someone takes from consideration right now about Freshly to becoming a raving fan who is driving that NPS score up and just, just spreading the word uh, about how, how great it is? How do they find out about it typically? And then how do they, how do they get to the point where they're really dialed in as a raving fan? Yes, yes. So as I said earlier, um, we built a great business. We haven't built that iconic brand just yet. We planted that seed this year, literally um, even went back to the drawing board to relook at our mission and purpose. And we are the whole organization now aligned on, on where we are. So because of that, a lot of that discovery is not happening uh, the way discovery happens or something like a Spotify, you know. Um, because we're not there just yet from a brand standpoint. So a lot of that discovery and the funnel begins through the power of our existing user base, through the power of some of our paid media, um, you know, across, of course, programmatic, paid social, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we are now starting to see a massive uptick, you know, in our organic growth, in our direct user base. And that is just, this is the year and the next six months where we will start to, we are challenging ourselves to see in hockey stick there because we are investing in content, we're investing in brand. So one, that is part one. Um, also, I have to highlight the fact that the, the opportunity we have is not just to build the Freshly brand, but it is also to lay the foundation for this category. And I remember reading your book, Sean, and I know you, were t- you talk a, a lot about how people never believed that Dropbox could be free. I feel it's the same way where people do not have the mindset that never frozen, freshly prepared meal that was cooked yesterday can come to their doorstep and they have to do nothing. So one, we have to do that work as well, which we kicked off this year. So that's one, that's top of funnel. And we are gradually starting to expand that way more than what we've done in the first four years where it's been laser focused on acquisition. Now we are focusing on education, awareness and consideration. Now, once we have once we have acquired our users, then of course we have our own, you know, the, the seven friends in 10 days of Facebook, we have our own correlated behaviors. You know, we, we, we love our users, um, you know, when they change their meals, because that in my mind is very similar to someone creating a playlist on Spotify. You see the value proposition, um, skipping the meal. You know, it's not a bad, be- it's, a, it's a very positive behavior when you skip your fourth week, you know, you're taking a break and, and you come back three weeks later, you know, when you're rating your meals. So we have we have some we have some very tangible uh, correlated behaviors, and we were talking about app earlier. So we we encourage um, you know a very high percentage of our users download the app, which organically open them up to a lot more of that experience. So that's the funnel, and uh, like any growth companies, we we focus on you know uh, onboarding to activation, and then a, a lot of focus on habit creation as well as um, you know virality and and some of that organic growth, which is I would admit it's a newer muscle because we are now investing in core components like content for our meals, for our food philosophy, which we strongly believe will become some of those, you know, um, organic content loop levers. 
it's interesting because I, my wife, I just got back from a three week trip to Europe and she was saying something about let's order out. And I was like, I haven't had a home cooked meal in three weeks. I really want a home cooked meal. And I can see how this really fills that void of, you know, she, she didn't want to prepare a meal and I was too tired because I just got back from traveling and that, you know, being able to have that, that healthy meal that we crave, but having the convenience of, of having it delivered to the doorstep. Um, I'm, when I tell her about this service, I'm sure she's going to get really excited, but she probably would have never thought of it. Absolutely. And, and actually, in that moment, Sean, that's a great use case. In that moment, in fact, you're not ordering anymore because it's lying in your fridge. And, and it's never frozen. So it's not in your freezer. It's in your fridge. And, um, you know, and it's literally three minutes, whichever way you want to heat it in the microwave or on the oven and so on. And I think you're spot on. And within a week, there are always these moments where you don't want to eat outside. It's not healthy. You don't want to pay 30 bucks for a single meal or for a meal of two and so on. So there's definitely a very, uh, I see a massive void and opportunity in the world um, that we have the ability to solve. So have you really found what drives that that retention? I mean, I, I know you talked about activation and there's a number of steps. I assume that ties into to the retention. But I, I guess the opposite would be when someone has done all of those things and stops using uh, Freshly, what what is it that, that causes them to decide they don't want to use the service anymore? Yeah, I mean, you know, there, there are different factors, of course. And um, it's like, I feel... Uh, if you were to ask anybody, or at least ask me, uh, what is the biggest challenge and opportunity for any organization, any product is going to be retention because you can you can buy your way into acquisition, you can buy love, you can or you can buy your first date. You can't buy love and you can't buy retention. So uh, I use that analogy all the time. So uh, if you figured out three things to improve your retention, uh, it becomes commodity. Nine months later, you have to figure out you know five more things to retain those users. So. First of all, philosophically and fundamentally, I believe that retention is a function of your ability as an organization to add incremental value every single time you touch the user or they come back. It cannot be, it is not static. It's the Amazon mindset. And we we also believe at Freshly that you, you think like that for your highest value and highest retained user, not only for the user at risk. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's a tough mindset to have. It's a tough a road to walk on, but there is no option for product because consumers have insane amount of choice, access, and control, and, and it's hard. So having said that, the the reasons why people may leave are, it could be a temporary reason. Someone's moving or it's Thanksgiving, you know, they want to really eat home-cooked food, fair. Um, sometimes it's human nature, even though we focus massively on innovation and variety. Sometimes you are tired of variety and you want to take a break. So we have a lot of users who tell us, look, I want to take a break for three months and we monitor that and we come back and engage with them. And we also look at some of the causality for, for retention. So we are now investing way more in the why behind the what, which is a little bit of a, a healthy predicament of having too much data is when you let your data tell you exactly why it's happening, whereas data may just be correlation, not causality. And that is where we are investing, especially within marketing, to really dig in both qualitatively and quantitatively to understand if someone's saying variety, how is that definition different for you versus me? And what do they really mean? So there are some of those foundational stuff that we're doing to now dig deeper. We're also innovating 
our business model, you know, we actually should check it out. We have what we call Freshly Plus in market now where, you know, you get a lot more benefits. It's like an Amazon Prime model where you get access to a nutritionist, you know, for a certain amount that you pay up front, you know, you get free shipping, you get, um, you know, different kind of opportunities. We're investing in partnerships where if you are a Freshly Plus user, you'll now get access to the Freshly ecosystem, which may be, you know, different kinds of uh, bundles that uh, that we all use to in our daily lives. So those are, again, those are effort to ultimately add incremental value. And the way I draw it out, Sean, is you have all these ways of bringing a user into your ecosystem and they should not have any friction. The ones they are when they're in your ecosystem, almost like a playground, the walls go up. And those walls have to be the walls of value. Either you're adding the value of data where if they leave, they have to feel they're leaving something behind meaningful for them, right? Or there has to be the value of reward that I'm going to lose all of this. Or there has to be the value of experience that nobody can replicate that personalized hire and experience. So in other words, if the value they get is purely functional, it is very easy for them to leave because you can fulfill the functional value anywhere else for a lower price. If it is functional and emotional, it's harder for our users to leave. And our journey is all about how do we not only focus on the functional value, but at the same time, more so focus on that emotional and cultural value as well. Awesome like picture of how you're approaching it and, and where the challenges are, where, where I think you're, you're really thriving. You, you did say that you, you do a ton of rapid iteration, and that's, that's one of the things you believe is important for, for growth in any business. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of iterations that drive positive results and some iterations that don't drive positive results that you need to roll back. Do you have, do you have any examples of things that you thought were going to work really well that, that turned up out not to work well? <laughs> um, there, are, there are lots of examples. Um, I'm, I'm just thinking in my head which ones I can share. But uh, yeah, no, I understand. Very high level, um, and I'll be a little bit abstract here, but it's real, it's not made up. Um, we've launched some product lines um, during this year that uh, we had a very clear mission and purpose behind. And uh, we launched them um, to prove that we can actually be a multi product line ecosystem because all of that ladders up to a core mission and purpose of being a wellness platform. And when we launched them, and we launched them at faster speed than I've seen in any CPG, because that's the benefit of being direct to consumer, we saw some tremendous growth in the first eight weeks. Uh, we beat our forecast. What we realized very quickly was we had to now go back, pause, build that underlying ecosystem because there were some gaps from a product engineering overarching experience from pricing standpoint, right? So the beautiful thing was we did that very quickly. We built a team. We did that in a, in a pure, um, you know, rapid, iterative way without, without impacting the core business. So it was a separate pod that was created like a mountain bet in a way. And we learned from it very quickly. We very quickly realized that before we scale, we now had a lot of learning to where are the gaps in our underlying ecosystem at Freshly before we can sustain four, five, six different product lines. So that's an example where we did something fast, we had an idea. It was true to our mission. We tested it, failed, learned a lot from it, which means it was successful. Now we are in the process of building that foundation. 
And it sounds like even there you validated demand, but you just realized you needed to operationalize that demand a little better. You are spot on. We validated demand. We validated there's an addressable audience, which is overlaps with our core product, which is our nails. Now we just have to do some, some you know, developing and, and we, we realized we were raising the third floor without having a basement in place. Yep. But I, I, to me, that's part of the excitement of testing is that um, it's the hardest part is, is to validate that you're, uh, you're, you're driving some consumer behavior in the way that you were hoping to. And once, once you validated that, because consumers are fickle and it's really hard to predict what they're going to like or not like, then, then it comes down to execution afterwards. And I, I feel like the execution piece is within your control. Absolutely. And one thing I would say, though, Sean, is when all these iterations happen and you, and you re-pivot as an organization, what matters most is the culture of the organization to ensure that that re-pivot is a success. Um, you know, because at the end, we are all humans and the team that's working on that has to believe that this was extremely successful because guess what? It paved the whole direction for the company for the next five years. Right, right. And, and yeah, and as long as it keeps tying back to mission, I think that's the other piece is that if you, if you get too, too crazy with your testing and you go too broad, then, then you might get pretty fragmented around how does this relate back to mission? But if that's, if mission is driving it and I mean, failure is part of realizing new and better ways to do things. So hopefully some, some, uh, comfort with a bit of failure is okay. And then, uh, and then, you know, just keep, keep doing what you're doing. But we're, we're getting close on time here. So I wanted to ask you really quickly. I mean, you've, you've had such a different experience, obviously, at Spotify. Now you said, you said 11 months you've been there? Yes, kind of 10, 10 and a half months, yes. So when you look back, um, I, I think in particular in the last 10, 10 and a half months, what do you feel like you understand differently about growth now than, than you did coming off the heels of leaving Spotify? Yes, I think, um, well, there are many beliefs I have around growth which, which have been reinforced. So um, they haven't been changed. The biggest one that I always talk about is growth is a function of every single function working together. Uh, it's not a bandit. You can create a growth team. You can call it whatever. You can call the CMO chief growth officer. You can bring another chief growth officer. At the end of the day, the only way you drive sustainable growth is when all pieces come together. The biggest learning for me is, is you know, when I used to, Early on in my career, I used to do a lot of reading, you know, including a lot of the work, Sean, you did back at Dropbox and many other places. I think we're all, as growth people or growth-minded people, we're all chasing that big hockey stick, that big idea, that Craigslist integration of Airbnb. Whereas I now believe that sustainable growth is a function of compounding interest, of small changes, small iterations, and small win here, a small win there. And every now and then, you know, you'll catch the big fish. But we cannot go after that big fish, um, you know, and, um, and that's my biggest lesson learned. It is, it is all about that. And, and I would say the one last thing which I learned in my second half of at Spotify is, is culture and value system in your organization can be the biggest catalyst or the biggest roadblock for your growth as a company. So, yes, all these strategies, all these ideas, you know, all the KPIs, but that is the single biggest roadblock or the single biggest catalyst for any organization. Yep. 
no, I, I, that, that makes a ton of sense. <laughs> um, well, that, I'm, I'm so appreciative that you took the time and, and helping all of us understand growth a bit better. So just some of the, my, my key takeaways from what you covered, um, I, I'll go back to what you really listed as the, the key drivers of growth that, that you believe there. So the, the data culture and mindset, which just reinforces what you just said right now, um, and you know, making sure that you have good unit economics, I, I think that that's critical, especially in a sector where there, there's a lot of companies that looked hot and then maybe not so hot. And I think it's probably um, p- people have come back to me recently and said, "Well, how could Uber be a great growth story if their stock is not going up?" And you know, I, I mean, again, growth and unit economics are not always the same thing. Healthy growth is when you have good unit economics and a, and and it's it's supporting a mission that's worthy and all all of those other pieces. Um, but I also think this idea of pivot and repivot is so critical that uh, I think the best growth and marketing people in the world on a product that doesn't have strong product market fit are going to struggle. And the opposite is also true. People who may not be great at executing growth and marketing, if if the product is super strong with product market fit, they're going to do well. So that that need to pivot and re-pivot and just constantly readjust that product market fit, I think, is is absolutely essential. And a lot of that happens then through the the rapid iteration everywhere that you're talking about and constantly having that mindset of how do we drive improvement over every single customer touch point. And when you do that, you're going to better convert, retain, and drive referral off of customers. Does that, those takeaways sound about right? That is, that is beautiful. I will recall that and, and transfer that into my personal book, Sean. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Well, I'm just playing back what you said. So um, thank you. those are your words. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you, Meyer. I really appreciate the time and I'm excited to uh, get this podcast interview out there so people can hear it. Wonderful. Well, thanks, Sean. It was wonderful talking to you and, and looking forward to it. Thanks for listening to the Breakout Growth Podcast. Please take a moment to leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. And while you're at it, subscribe so you never miss a show. Until next week.